recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, and this is Christogeny on Tachu. I have a um, well, well, it's it's sort of experimental, but I think it'll work out just fine. Tonight's a first for for me, and probably for um, and anybody in Christian identity. I'm able to broadcast live right through my website, and, and I would prefer people came here and, and participated in the chat or listen here, but. People will also be able to listen right on the front page of org. There's a player there. There's a pop-up player. And, and um, all you have to do is hit the, hit the pop-up or hit the player, and, and you should be able to hear this program live. This program, I also did a um, – for some years, there's been a group in Louisiana I've been doing a Thursday night Bible study with. And they've never really been recorded or, or open for electronic participation. But last night, I, um, I played that on my live stream and on my chat server, on, on the TeamSpeak chat server, and seven or eight people were able to listen to it all on the chat server. And I think they probably – I hope they enjoyed it anyway. So, so um, Chris Degenia now has the, the – well, we ha- we're going to stay on TalkShoe for these programs, but we now have the ability to do um, live radio programs with, with multiple participants without TalkShoe at all, with our own website and our own chat room on our website or on the TeamSpeak server or in both places at the same time, which is sweet. It, it's excellent technology, and hopefully it will work out for us. Okay, this is um, Mark chapters 6 and 7, and, and it's a long presentation, so I'm, it's about 12 pages, so I'm going to get right into it. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being here, and praise Yahweh. Before reading the first paragraph of Mark chapter 6, it would be fitting to discuss what was customary to do on the Sabbath. And yes, I get these questions all the time. It is obvious from many places in Scripture that people gathered on the Sabbath to learn the Scripture. But it was apparently not that way from the beginning. Where the command in Deuteronomy chapter 31 was to read the law to all the people once every seven years in the year to release on the Feast of Tabernacles. That was pretty light. That was all that was required of the people, and of course they didn't do that much. Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 through 13, And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel is come to appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, Thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men, women, and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear, and that they may learn, and fear Yahweh your God, and observe to do all the words of this law. And that their children, which have not known anything, may hear, and learn to fear Yahweh your God, as long as you live in the land whither you go over Jordan to possess it. So we see it's in the law that the children of Israel were only compelled to hear the law once every seven years. Of course, most of us could hear it every day, and we'd still screw up. 
And of course, we don't know how well this was maintained throughout the period of the judges and the early kingdom years. After the death of Solomon, however, it can be ascertained that little reading of the law was done in the divided kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel officially turned to idolatry, which is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 12, immediately after Solomon's death. However, it remains evident that in spite of that, certain pious people were indeed still accustomed to gathering to hear the word of God on certain days. This is evident from places such as 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, where the ministry of Elisha is being described, and where we see the following dialogue between a woman and her husband, and I quote, And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore, or why, will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. So we see that the man would have expected his wife to do such a thing on the date of a new moon or a Sabbath, but not on any other day. We may respond similarly, similarly today if a spouse said, I am going to the church on a day other than a Sunday, right? Or, or a, one, of the, what, one of the Judeo-Christian holy days. But Judah also forsook the law, and the covenant is evident in the Chronicles with the discovery of the book of the law having, uh, described as having occurred in the days of Josiah. In 2 Kings chapter 22, it is evident that in the 18th year of Josiah, the temple, which had obviously from the text fallen into a state of neglect, was repaired and the book of the law was found. Josiah himself is said to have declared that the people had totally neglected the law and all of the obligations related to the covenants, as it is described in 2 Kings chapter 23. Josiah then read the law to all of the people, and proceeded to put all of the pagan temples and priests and all of the sodomites, as they are described, out of business and out of the kingdom. Ancient Judah was no different than modern America, and Canaanite pagan debauchery no different than modern Jewish perversity. Yet, thankfully, there are still some Americans who prefer the word of God. Even after the reforms of Josiah, from the biblical record, it is clear that the nation, ancient Judah, again neglected hearing the law and again sank into depravity. In the time of the governorship of Nehemiah, which was from 502 to 490 B.C., after the return of the 42,000 or so people to Jerusalem, we see again that the law was read before all of the people who must not have been accustomed to hearing it. Because at Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9 it says, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. The end of Nehemiah chapter 8 describes the reading of the law at the Feast of Tabernacles as had been commanded in Deuteronomy nearly a thousand years before time. In Nehemiah, 
9-3, we see that the reading from the law lasted for a quarter part of the day, or at least three hours, as the day was reckoned at that time, and it was read on each day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Yet with all of this, it cannot really be told when or for how long there was an established custom among the people to read from the Scripture each Sabbath or to meet in order to do so. While we saw here that it was evident that something along those lines for the Acts had happened as early as the days of Elisha, we are not certain it was maintained among many of our people from that time until the period of the New Testament. But in the New Testament, it is fully evident that such a practice was indeed maintained among the people and had been maintained for some time. It is evident in the Gospel accounts that the people at the Sabbath assemblies expected to hear from the Scriptures. Later, James at Acts chapter 15, verse 21, is attributed as having said, For Moses from generations of old has those who are proclaiming him each in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. Perhaps James was alluding to that practice, which we saw was evident in the days of Elisha. The men of Beroia, as it is described in Acts chapter 17, were also evidently accustomed to reading the scripture, as their reading of the scripture is described in that chapter. Paul again mentions the customary reading from the law in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Everywhere Paul brought the gospel, as it is evident in the accounts of the Acts and in his epistles, it is evident that there, was, there were customary readings of Scripture in the assemblies on the Sabbath, where both Judeans and Greeks were gathered. This history is included here because it is often inquired what Christians should do on the Sabbath. It is obvious from places such as 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14 what Christians should do on a Sabbath. They should gather to read from the law and to edify one another in the faith. While some things have changed since the apostolic age, such as the spirit-given ability to speak in tongues, those few instructions which we were left should nevertheless serve as our model and should be sufficient for each assembly to develop its own custom, since neither should Christians seek to rule over the faith of their brethren. Mark 6, chapter 1. And he went out there from there and comes into his fatherland, meaning Galilee, the city, the, the land around Nazareth can be assumed. The word is fatherland, literally. And his students follow him. And upon the coming of a Sabbath, he began to teach in the assembly. So there we have it. And many listening were, ast were astonished, saying, from where in this man are these things? They saw him as a simple carpenter's son, right? And what wisdom has been given to this man? And such powers as these coming by his hand. Is this not the craftsman? Another translation of the word for carpenter. The son of Maria and the brother of Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Simon. 
And are his brethren not here with us? And they were offended by him, and Yahshua said to them, that a prophet is not without honor, except in his own fatherland, and among his kinsmen, and in his house. It's evident that the people that have known you all your life are not going to consider you to be a prophet. They're not going to consider you to be a teacher or, or even an understander of the things of God. That they know you as a child and they perceive you as a child and they know what your education has been or at least they think they know. And they're going to always treat you as that little kid next door or the little kid across the street or your little brother or your big brother to pain in the ass. Or, that They're always going to perceive you in that manner. And no matter how learned or, 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 or wise you become or how well you're in, endowed with the gifts of God, they're still going to see that little kid, right? In Mark chapter 3 we read, and he comes into a house, this is verse 20, and the crowd comes along again consequently for them not to be able even to eat bread. And hearing it, those of his relations came out to seize him, for they said that he is insane. And the scribes coming down from Jerusalem said that he has Beelzebub, and that by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So we see that the kinsman of Christ said that he is insane, even in spite of the miraculous things that he did, which were being reported. We see that same attitude all around us today when we make professions contrary to the popular opinion or doubt the veracity of those beliefs or attitudes which the media has contrived and which are now popularly accepted. In other words, if you go against the mainstream, you're insane too. Verse 5. And he was not able to do there even one seat of power, or one miracle, as the King James probably has it, except that he placed the hands upon and healed a few of the sick. The people were obviously programmed into the patterns of behavior accepted by society and expected from society at that time. If the people refuse to open their eyes as to what is really going on, and they resist God, how could God help the people? There is a lesson in all of this for us today. If Christ, performing miracles could not get his own people to open their eyes to the truth, how much more difficult should it be for us today to open the eyes of, of our brethren who are caught up in the world and who are worshiping the Judeo gods? And those around us who know us will never accept hearing that we know better, a better way than the ways of the world. In verse 3 above, we see the brothers of Christ are mentioned, and among them are Jacob, or James, as the King James has it, and Judah, called Jude in most Bibles to distinguish him from the famous traitor Judas, right? These are the authors of those epistles. 
which we know as James and Jude in the New Testaments, which we have today. Paul confirms James's apostleship at Galatians 1.19, where he states that the James whom he knew in Jerusalem, referring to that James of Acts chapters 15 and 21, was James the Lord's brother, as the King James Version has it, the brother of Christ. In the epistle of Jude, the apostle opens it by calling himself servant of Yahshua Christ and brother of James, or Jacob. These two men were considered apostles, but they were evidently not among the original 12 apostles named in Mark 3, except that perhaps James was, and I will get to that in a minute. The list of 11 Apostles at Acts 1.13 includes both James and Jude, the brethren of Christ, and missing in that list is James, the son of Zebedee. The list of apostles at Mark 3 and Matthew 10 agree. Simon, Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and that's important. The Stadius and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot. In Luke chapter 6, there is a James mentioned with John, who must be that same brother and son of Zebedee mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Yet Luke's list, in Luke's list, Lebahius, who is only mentioned twice, once each in the original lists of Matthew and Mark, is not mentioned and seems to have dropped out of sight. To fill out the twelve, Luke mentions Judas, the brother of James, in his place. Yet Luke's account in, in Luke's account in Acts, we see mentioned Peter and John and Jacob and Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Math- Matthias, or Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, the Canaanian, and Judah, the brother of Jacob, or Judah, the brother of James. In Luke's list, Jude, the brother of James, must be Jude, the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus. Therefore, one may be led to believe that Mary, the mother of Christ, not only had more children after she gave birth to Christ, but that she had them with a man named Alphaeus, who was apparently not the same as that Joseph whom she was married to when Christ was born. This is controversial. It sets off a lot of emotion for some strange reason, especially if you're a Catholic. And it's intriguing Yet it certainly seems to be true. Nevertheless, at the beginning of his ministry, at least a majority, if not all, of the kinsmen of Christ thought that he was mad and did not believe him at all. But the James and Jude, who later wrote those epistles, they did become apostles, and they were the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And that could be demonstrated through these scriptures. 
so much for the Catholic idea of perpetual virginity. Mark 6, verse 6. And he marveled on account of their disbelief. And he went about the surrounding villages teaching. And he summons the twelve again and began to send them off in pairs and gave to them authority over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing on the road except a staff only, not bread, not a bag, not copper coins for the belt, but having bound sandals, you should not wear two cloaks. And he said to them, wherever you should enter into a house, you stay there until you should depart from there. And whatever place should not receive you nor hear you, going from there, you shake off the dust from under your feet for a testimony to them. In other words, even our brethren who don't want to hear the truth, we don't bother them with it again. We, we just shake the dust from off of our feet. They've heard us. They've had their opportunity. And we, we, we set them aside. And going out, they proclaimed in order that they should repent, and they cast out many demon, demons, that might refer to Jewish bankers, and anointed with olive oil and healed many sick. We read about the same mission in Matthew chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 9. Yet only here do we read explicitly that Christ sent the apostles off in pairs, which is certainly why when they are listed in Matthew's account, even though it doesn't say so explicitly, they are listed in pairs, if one observes the way the Greek is constructed. One lesson in the Gospel is that there is a time and a place for everything, and that the Word of God must be fulfilled in its season. At Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, Christ recounts this mission, which he had sent the apostles on much earlier, where it reads, and he said to them, when I sent you without purse and wallet and sandals, did you have need of anything? And they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he having a purse must take it, and a likewise a wallet, and he not having a sword must sell his garment and buy one. Christ knew at the first that the apostles would not face any, advers any adversity which necessitated violence upon their immediate mission, this one which we see here in Mark chapter 6. For as he said in Luke of this same event, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions, meaning Edomites and Canaanites, today's Jews and today's Arabs, and upon all the power of the enemy, and no one shall by any, shall, shall by any means do you injustice. Yet, later in Luke, where he told them that they would need such things, that they would need that sword, with his passing, he knew that the day was coming that they would indeed have to defend themselves on account of the faith. The King James Version has an interpolation here at the end of verse 11, which reads, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The statement, which appears in the Codex Alexandrinus, and in several later Syriac, Coptic, and Latin manuscripts which followed the Greek, does not appear in any of the other major Greek codices, including the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, the Bizai, and the Ephraimi Syri 
The majority text upon which the King James Version was founded is shown from the differences in the Greek manuscripts in every book again and again to follow the Alexandrian tradition throughout the Scripture. And I keep bringing this up because a lot of people who are King James-only types also are double-minded because they try to claim otherwise and they reject the Alexandrian tradition of the manuscripts. I also reject the Alexandrian tradition of the manuscripts in favor of the Sinaiticus or the Vaticanus. However, at least for the New Testament, right? However, the King James follows the Alexandrian tradition, and it can be shown from the manuscripts again and again and again. And that's something to keep in mind when you're reading literature from the King James defenders who would deny the Alexandrian manuscripts. You could pick up a copy of the Nestle A. Land Novum Testamentum Grece and compare it to the King James and find again and again that the King James follows the Alexandrian manuscripts. I've done it. Mark 6, verse 14. And Herodotus, the king, heard, for his name became known, meaning Christ. And he said that John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and for this reason powers operate in him. Very superstitious. But others said that it is Elijah, and others said that he is a prophet, like one of the prophets. Then hearing it, Herodotus said, John, whom I beheaded, he has arisen. Herodotus must have had a guilty conscience, huh? Like he was coming to get him. <laughs> At least partially out of necessity, I shall repeat some things here that I already gave in my presentation of Matthew chapters 14 and 15. This account, which we see here, is also related in Luke chapter 9 and Matthew 14. This is the first time we have seen the name Herod in the Gospel of Mark. But it is not the same Herod as that Herod who was the king of Judea at the time of the birth of Christ. There are ten different men named Herod. All of the same family of Edomites, today's Jews, identified in the index to William Whiston's complete works of Josephus as they are published today. That first Herod, whom the Jews like to call Herod the Great, is more properly known as the usurping murderer of the Hasmoneans and the son of the Edomite Antipater. He died just a short time after the birth of Christ, about 1 or 2 B.C. He was succeeded by his son, Herod Archelaus, who was so cruel that after only a few short years, the Romans took the kingdom from him and exiled him to Vienna in Gaul, which is actually a city in what is now the southeast of modern France, not to be confused with the city named Vienna in Austria. From that point on, Judea was split into four pieces, and rulers called tetrarchs, which means ruler of a fourth, 
were set over them. This Herod here is Herod Antipas, another son of the first Herod, and he and his brother Philip each received a tetrarchy in their father's old kingdom from the Romans. Herod Antipas was tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, which was just east of the Jordan. Philip was tetrarch of Dolonitis, Trachonitis, and Panea, which were all north of Perea and east of the Sea of Galilee. Sometime after Philip's death, another Herod named Agrippa was by the emperor Caligula made a king over Philip's tetrarchy, since Philip had left no sons. Herod Agrippa was a grandson of the first Herod by Aristobulus, a son whom Herod, the first Herod, had put to death. He put to death several of his own sons. It is, it is Herod the Tetrarch, however, Philip's brother, the Herod who had his brother's wife, Philip's wife, who is the Herod so prominent in the Gospels during the ministry of Christ. When John the Baptist upbraided Herod for taking Philip's wife as his own, Philip was still alive, as Josephus records it in Antiquities, Book 18. This Herod the Tetrarch was later banished to Spain by Caligula, who was the emperor from 37 to 41 AD. And his tetrarchy was added to the kingdom of Agrippa, which almost puts together Herod's old kingdom. It is Herod Agrippa whose death is described later in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa 1. The family of Herod is quite confusing, since many of them were adulterers, and they married their own nieces and first cousins, as well as their brothers' wives, and they typically used only a handful of names across all their generations. There are basically four men named Herod mentioned in the New Testament. These are Herod, Herod the usurper at the time of Christ, the birth of Christ, Herod the Tetrarch during the ministry of Christ, Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12, and his son Herod Agrippa II at the end of the book of Acts, who is called only Agrippa in the account given there. That last Herod, he had an incestuous relationship with the woman Bernice, or Bernike properly, who is mentioned along with him in the account in those closing chapters of Acts. Bernice was his sister, and not, in the civil sense, his wife. And that incestuous relationship that he had with his sister was the talk of even Josephus and his antiquities. Here we see that not only is it attributed that Herod the Tetrarch was quite superstitious, but that he believed in the possibility of a resurrection, and therefore also in a continuance of the spirit after death. Therefore, it is not likely that he followed the Sadducees, and at this time, as it can be demonstrated from Acts chapter 5, the Sadducees were the high priests. 
The Sadducees rejected everything spiritual. They discounted the possibility of life after death. They discounted the possibility of resurrection or angels. They did everything but deny God himself. While the Pharisees accepted the spiritual as a fact, they did do that. This difference in their beliefs often set the Sadducees and the Pharisees at odds, causing contention between them, as we see Paul takes advantage of in the beginning of Acts chapter 23. Enough on the history of the perverted Jewish family of Herod. Verse 17. For Herod himself, having sent, seized John and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of Philippus, his brother, because he had married her. And we see from Josephus, the historian, that he married her before Philip had died, which is against the law, right? For John had said to Herodias that it is not lawful for you to have the wife of your brother. And Herodias, the woman, held it against him and desired to kill him, and she was not able. For Herod feared John, knowing that he is a just and holy man, and he watched out for him, and hearing him, he was often in doubt, yet gladly he heard him. Isn't it amazing that then, even as we see today, the Edomite Jew hates all those who would actually uphold the laws of God, even while their rabbis give them lip service. And we see even Herod had doubt. He couldn't quite believe John, but he liked to hear him. Jews loved their entertainment. Leviticus, book 18, chapter 6, verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 16. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife, it is thy brother's nakedness. And Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 21. And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Or at least their children won't amount to anything. Verse 21, Mark chapter 6. And an opportune day coming when Herod held the dinner for his birthday with his noblemen and the commanders and the first men of Galilee, and his daughter, by Herodias, having entered in and dancing, pleased Herod and those reclining together. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you may desire, and I shall give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you may ask me, I shall give you, so much as half of my kingdom. And having gone out, she said to her mother, What should I ask? And her mother said, For the head of John the Baptist. And immediately entering into the king with zeal, she asked, saying, I desire that at once you should give to me the head of John the Baptist upon a plate. Imagine your daughter asking somebody for that. And the king becoming quite grieved on account of the oaths, and those reclining together did not want to refuse her. He made an oath, and he had all those people who heard it. He can't go back on his oath in front of all those people. He probably would if they weren't sitting there. 
And immediately the king, having sent a bodyguard, commanded his head to be brought. And having departed, he beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head upon a plate and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And his students, having heard, came and took his body and buried it in a tomb. As can be seen in Matthew chapter 14, the girl's mother's name is Herodias. Herodias was not only the former wife of Philip, this Herod's brother, but she was also their half-niece. She was the daughter of that Aristobulus who was put to death by the first Herod. She was the full sister of Herod Agrippa I, who came to rule over Herod the Tetrarchs and Philip's dominions. So she was the aunt of Herod Agrippa II. Herod the Tetrarch and Philip were both sired by the first Herod with a woman named Mariam, who was the daughter of Hyrcanus, the last high priest of the Hasmonean dynasty, whom Herod killed killed the man and married after he married his daughter. It is amazing that the man whom the Jews loved to call Herod the Great gained his kingdom by bribery and treachery and murder and also murdered both several of his sons, his wives, his father-in-law, and many hundreds, perhaps thousands of other people. The Jews loved to call this character Herod the Great which shows you the mentality of the Jew. If the people whom we know as Jews were indeed Israel, they would, have, they would hate the Herods rather than adulating them. Herod even married his own niece, contrary to Hebrew law, as many of his children and grandchildren later did. Herod Agrippa was the son of this first Herod by his niece, the daughter of his sister, Salam, and she was named Bernice. We've seen that Herod Agrippa had two children, Herod II, Herod Agrippa II, and Bernice, who were themselves later involved in an incestual relationship. The name Bernice is recorded among women six times in the family of Herod, adding to the confusion. This Herodiana, who was married to both Philip and then to Herod the Tetrarch, she was the daughter of Aristobulus, the son of the first Herod, so she has both wife, she was both wife and niece to each of them. Here is what the historian Flavius Josephus wrote of the death of John the Baptist after Herod had gone to war against Aretas, the king of Arabia, and suffered defeat. And I quote, now, some of the Judeans thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, who commanded the Judeans to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, so that the washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but for the, purific but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. 
only God could cleanse your soul. Now, when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it should be too late. Accordingly, he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Macarus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Now, the Judeans had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure against him. The Romans, as Josephus goes on to describe, then sent Vitellius with two legions against Aretas, the king of Arabia. Now, it should be evident that Josephus' account, written perhaps 60 years after these things actually happened, is revisionist in the reason he gave for Herod's having killed John. It may well have been that this was the excuse later used by Herod, who was clearly embarrassed at the circumstances by which he had put John to death as an oath to a girl. And we need not look on either version as being suspect or even totally dishonest. What we actually see is the difference between an eyewitness account in the gospel and a political history in Josephus, much like we see all the time today, where accounts of events are spun in order to suit those in power. The gospel is the eyewitness account, and it is true. Josephus's account represents the political history and probably is the government press release of the circumstances. If today, well, well, someday if we read an eyewitness account, a true eyewitness account of reasons for the recent destruction of Libya, we may read something which describes the Jewish bankers' lust for power and money and the Libyan resources as a reason why they funded the overthrow of the Libyan government. But if we read the political history of the victors, we may see that Libya's ruler was an evil tyrant and that a so-called regime change was necessary for humanitarian reasons. Such is how history is written. Mark 6, verse 30. And the ambassadors gathered to Yahshua, and they reported to him all things whatever they had done and as much as they had taught. And he says to them, you yourselves come alone to a desert place and rest a little. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have an opportunity to eat. And they went off in a vessel to a desert place by themselves. And many saw them going and recognized them and running together on foot from every city to that place. Then they came ahead of them. And having come out, he saw a great crowd, 
and was deeply moved by them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I guess if the boats are moving across the water, they would be recognized. This last pericope does not appear in Matthew's account in Matthew chapters 14 and 15. The various gospel perspectives do not actually conflict with one another. Rather, for having them written from different perspectives, we should be grateful, since they help us piece together a more complete picture of what had transpired at that faithful time in our history than we would have if we only had one account. Mark 6, verse 35. And it already having been a late hour, his students coming forth to him said that, it is a desert place, and already the hour is late. Release them, meaning the people, in order that departing to the surrounding farms and villages, they may buy for themselves something to eat. And replying, he said to them, you give to them to eat. And they said to him, Departing, could we buy 200 denarii of wheat loaves and give to them to eat? In other words, if they had the money, they would not have had a place to buy the bread. And he says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And learning, they say, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to be reclined in parties upon the grass. And they reclined in groups, some a hundred and some fifty. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to the heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his students in order that they would serve them. And he divided the two fish for all. And they all ate and were satiated, or filled. And there were twelve baskets full of fragments and from the fish. And those eating the loaves were 5,000 men. First, let me state that Mark's use of the phrases, the Greek words, symposia, symposia, just like that, the same word doubled, and prasiahi, prasiahi, the same word doubled, with a translation which I've given says in parties and in groups is called by some scholars distributive doubling. It is a use of Greek which some consider to be poetic and others consider to be vulgar. It is also thought to be a Hebraism, but since there's very literal, little actual Hebrew of the time, that then we're not positive it's a Hebraism. The language here is quite flowery. The word which I've translated grass is actually a phrase and says green grass. I believe this passage is written in a, is written in a poetical Hebrew picture drawing formula, although it was written in Greek, which does not carry over well through the Greek language and into English, and therefore, in the Christogenia New Testament, I translated the passage in a simple narrative, in a simple narrative manner. Matthew at 14.21 says of this event, 
Now those men eating were about 5,000 besides women and children. My, my remarks on, on the Mark's use of the words, the phrases, symposia, symposia, which really means in parties, in parties, and prasiahi, prasiahi, which really means in groups, in groups. It's one of those places where I believe that Mark, even though he was writing in Greek and probably writing in Italy, used very many Hebraisms, in other words, Hebrew language features in the Greek language. And and that betrays, it, it's certainly not a Greek construction, and it certainly betrays Mark as having Greek for a secondary language. And it only makes sense that a Hebrew or perhaps a native Aramaic speaker is the original author of this gospel. As I said, presenting my commentary on this very event in the Gospel of Matthew, these examples are here in the New Testament. That these events we can take which happen as examples so that we know that if indeed God wants us to eat, then we shall eat and we shall have plenty. While there is no precise Old Testament prophecy of this miracle, aside from the feeding of Israel with manna in the desert, the manna in the desert did not fail our fathers for 40 years. But there is one Old Testament precedent for this very same miracle, an example at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, where it says, And there came a man from Baal-Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and full ears of corn or grain in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What should I set this before a hundred men? Twenty loaves of bread are surely not sufficient to feed a hundred men. He said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith Yahweh, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. So he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof, according to the word of Yahweh. While it is not as extreme an example as a few loaves and two fish for 5,000 people, we see that a large group of people were somehow filled, and they were leftovers from a relatively small amount of food, and there were certainly women and children with the hundred men also, as there were with the five thousand. In another place, the woman of Zarephath, who comforted Elijah, ate for many days from a small amount of meal and oil. While there was a great famine in the land, because it did not rain for quite some time. It says at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 16, and I quote, The barrel of meal wasted not. Neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Elijah. When Elijah met the woman, the barrel contained but a handful of meal. Christ tells us in Luke chapter 12, and I quote, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. 
We should believe him. Our God shall provide for us in the hardest of times. But that does not mean that food will drop from heaven. It doesn't mean that happy meals will drop from heaven. It rather only means that at the least, he will provide us with the means to obtain that which is sufficient for our sustenance, and for that our faith should be in him. Mark 6, verse 45. And immediately he compelled his students to board into the vessel and to go ahead to the other side to Bethsaida until he releases the crowd. And having disposed with them, he went off into the mountain to pray. And it becoming late, the vessel was in the midst of the sea and he alone upon land. And seeing them being tried while sailing, for there was a wind opposing them, Around the fourth watch of the night, he comes to them walking upon the sea. And he, I'm sorry. And he wished to pass, to pass them by. But they seeing him walking upon the sea supposed that it is an apparition, what we would call a ghost. And they cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately, he spoke with them and says to them, Have courage, it is I, do not fear. And he went up to them into the vessel, and the wind abated, and they were exceedingly astonished within themselves, for they did not understand after the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In other words, they saw the miracle of the, the five loaves feeding 5,000 people, and they still didn't get it. There is no prophecy of Christ walking on water that I have found, but there are some poetic references in prophecy to Yahweh God doing the same thing. And I quote, Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen: Thy way is the sea and thy path into great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Job 9, 8. Which alone, referring to God, which alone spreads out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. And Isaiah 43:16. Thus saith Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea and the path in the mighty waters. So by walking on water, I believe Christ again shows us that he is indeed God. He also shows us, I believe, that we will overcome the physical world if indeed we follow him. As he told us in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Mark 6, verse 53. And crossing over towards the land, they came to Gennesaret, and they anchored nearby. And upon their coming out from the vessel, immediately recognizing him, they ran about that entire region and began to bring around upon cots those having maladies wherever they heard that he is. And wherever he entered into a village or into a city or into the farms, in the marketplaces, they set down those who were sick and they exhorted him, in order that if they could come, if they could even touch the border of his garment, and as many as touched him 
were saved or preserved. This passage is also found in this order in Matthew chapter 14. The word Genesaray is apparently the Hellenized form of the word Kinneroth, believe it or not, an Old Testament town of Naphtali, and the same as the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee, which was the Sea of Kinneroth, Joshua 12.3. The town was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was called Lake Tiberias by the Romans. We see in Mark chapter 5, as well as in Matthew 9 and Luke 8, the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, who also believed that she would be healed if only she touched the border of his garment, and she was. Of course, it was most likely not the touching of the garment that healed the woman, but rather the faith which she had that she attributed to the touching of the garment. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes, having come from Jerusalem, gathered together to him. And seeing some of his students, that with profane hands, that is, unwashed hands, they eat bread. For the Pharisees and all the Judeans, if they do not wash the hands to the elbow, they do not eat holding to the tradition of the elders. There's a Greek word here. The Greek word is pugme, which is in the dative case and means to the elbow. The word meaning a fist, as well as being a unit of measure of the distance from the knuckles to the elbow, kind of like a cubit, right? The King James Version translators seem to have confused this word with another word, pukna, which can, oft, which can mean often. Some manuscripts do have pukna, but according to the Novum Testamentum Grece, the majority text has pugme. So the King James translators, that they, they sort of improvised on that one. Verse 4, and from the marketplace, if they do not rinse, they do not eat. If they do not rinse the food, they do not eat it. And there are many other things which they undertook to hold to, washings of cups and pitchers and pots. And the Pharisees and scribes questioned him. And before I read the question, let me say that the, the Pharisees and scribes certainly held their oral tradition above the letter of the law and far above the spirit of the law. Most of this concern over the washings of cups and pots and food, of course, seemed to come from a fanatical keeping of the food laws. Mark 7, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes questioned him, For what reason do your students not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But with profane hands they eat bread. But he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, concerning your hypocrisy, as it is written that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts keep far from me. 
and vainly do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, leaving the commandment of Yahweh you hold to the tradition of men. The quote is from Isaiah chapter 29, 13. Wherefore, Yahweh said, for as much as this people draws near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. The Pharisees publicly appeared to keep the law to a fanatical degree. Yet in substance, they disdained the law, and they dishonored it in many ways. The later rabbinical writings, which began to develop not long after this time, are a good reflection of the beliefs and practices of the Pharisees. The debates over the law found in the Mishnah of the Talmud are a collection of sick and twisted Jewish interpretations which are actually designed to circumvent the law rather than uphold it. Mark 7, verse 9. And he said to them, Well, do you reject the commandment of Yahweh that you may keep your tradition? For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he speaking evil of father or mother must die in sentence of death. But you say, if a man should say to father or mother, whatever you have benefited from me is Corbin, which is a gift, another proof that Mark wrote in Greek, you no longer allow him to do anything for the father or mother, rendering void the word of Yahweh by your tradition which you have transmitted and many such similar things which you do. A man, of course, should have an obligation to care for his parents in their old age as his parents raised him up and cared for him when he was young. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which Yahweh God has given thee. And Exodus twenty-one fifteen says, and he that smites his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Exodus 21.17 says, And he that curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Neglecting aged parents, you do all of these things. Evidently, from the words of Christ, the Pharisees were teaching that a man in their tradition can tell his parents that whatever they benefited from him is a gift. In other words, the man has no obligation to care for his parents, and the Pharisees let men get away with that. A man who's an upstanding member of the community would never say that. He would rather happily oblige and abide by any needs that his aged parents had. And he would understand that he was obligated to them to care for them in his old age, in, in their old age. Christ is actually telling us that the Pharisees allowed men to disdain their parents by their traditions. I'm not sure the traditions of the elders or the traditions of the Hebrew elders. It's very possible 
although it can't be established in history or in the Bible, so far as I know, that the tradition of the elders are the tradition of the Hebrew elders, it's very possible that the traditions of the elders referred to, that many of these practices actually came from the Edomites who were absorbed into the population and worked their way into the priesthood, which is very clear from many passages of the New Testament and from the prophecy of Malachi and Ezekiel and the histories of Josephus and the testimony of Eusebius and other early Christian writers, that many of these Pharisees and high priests and scribes were actually Edomite Jews. And it may very well be the traditions of their elders, which they are claiming to uphold here, and not the actual biblical writings, which we know, in many cases, they openly violated. Mark 7, verse 14. And summoning the crowd again, he said to them, All must hear me and understand. There is nothing outside of the man entering into him which is able to defile him. But the things coming out from a man are the things defiling him. A lot of really silly people and perhaps a lot of outright deceivers have over the years turned this statement into an insistence that Christ would advocate the consumption of poisons as an act of faith, or the eating of swine, or many other things which are obviously not fit to eat. But in context, here he is only talking about food. And the explanations of the parable which follow, which is not found in Matthew, but is found here in Mark, we see that he is clearly talking only about food. The Pharisees were taking the law to extremes, or beyond extremes. So insistent that a man must not even consume a speck of dirt, or a mite, or a gnat, that they sought to regulate their entire lives with such strict commandments. Christ is simply telling them that a little dirt really does not matter, and that such is not why the law was given in the first place. Likewise, it is recorded in Matthew 20, chapter 23 that he called them blind guides, straining out the gnat, and here we have it, but swallowing the camel. The passage at Mark 7.16, which I'm going to skip, is an interpolation. It's found, again, in the Codex Alexandrinus, the Alexandrian tradition, but also the Washingtonensis and the Bizai, all 5th century codices. And therefore, it's in the King James Version. It's not found in the older codices, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So it's missing. It's wanting from the King James. It's wanting from the Christogenian New Testament. Mark seven seventeen, And when he had entered into a house, away from the crowd, his students asked him the parable. And he says to them, Thusly also are you without understanding. Do you not perceive that everything from outside entering into the man is not able to defile him, because it does not enter into his heart, 
but into the belly. And it goes out into the latrine, cleansing all foods. He's talking about food, right? Then he said that that which is coming out from the man, that would defile the man. For from inside of the hearts of men are evil reasonings coming out. Acts of fornication, they start in the heart. Thefts, murders, acts of adultery, greediness, wickedness, treachery, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, arrogance, foolishness, all these wicked things come out from the inside and defile the man. The food laws are for the benefit of man, not man for the benefit of the food laws. It is not a sin to eat a speck of dust or a mite or a little dirt on our hands. Rather, it is the things which we do that can more readily harm us, how we treat our brethren, and not those incidental things which the Pharisees and today's governments regulate endlessly. When you see Phariseeism in government, it's usually a sign that Jews are in charge. That's why we have an 80,000-page tax code. Matthew 7, verse 24. And arising from there, he departed for the borders of Tyre and Sidon. And entering into a house, he desired to know no one, yet was not able to escape notice. But immediately a woman hearing about him, of whom her daughter had an unclean spirit, having come, fell to his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician, by race, a term that could also mean by birth. And she asked him that he would cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not good to take the bread of the children and cast it to the little dogs. But she responded and says to him, Yes, Master. Yet the little dogs under the table eat from the crumbs of the children. And he said to her, on account of this word, go. The demon has departed from your daughter. And having gone off to her house, she found a child cast upon a couch, and the demon departed. Here again, I shall repeat many of the things which I discussed concerning this event when I did the commentary for the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, probably three or four months ago. It's been a while. Before beginning to explain this account, it must be understood that this woman was indeed a Canaanite and nothing else. Here Mark calls the woman a Syrophoenician by race or by birth. That is not a Greek ethnic description. It's only a geographical description. It's a geographical description that the Greeks and Romans would have understood. Mark calls her a Greek, and neither is that an ethnic description, but only a cultural one. The Greeks did not call themselves Greeks, but rather they called themselves after either their tribe, which is a racial distinction, or their districts. So we have Ionians and Dorians, which are tribes. Or we have Athenians and Corinthians, which are cities or districts. The Athenians were, for the most part, of the tribe of the Ionians. The Corinthians were, for the most part, Dorian Greeks. 
their race was Dorian. The term Greek properly represented a language and a manner of living. It was a cultural term. However, Matthew, who was a Hebrew, Matthew identifies this same woman in his gospel as a Canaanite. The word Canaanite at this time is a word virtually unknown to the Greeks and which was not an ethnic or a geographical description in use at this time in Greek or in Latin. The word Canaanite does not appear in Greek writing at all up until this point outside of the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek. The Greeks knew of Syrians, Edomians, Arabians, etc., but not as Canaanites. Therefore, Matthew, when he calls this woman a Canaanite, must be identifying her from a racial perspective. And the Greeks were not aware of the Canaanite race as a distinct entity. It was outside of their historical knowledge of the area. except for what is found in the Septuagint in the passages referring to the events of antiquity. And even in the Septuagint, Canaanites are often mistakenly called Phoenicians, a term which should not properly be applied to Canaanites, except from the Greek and Roman geographical viewpoint. However, the Hebrews... Hebrews such as Matthew, were indeed aware of the Canaanites. And the Hebrew could make a much more accurate distinction, being much more intimate with the Canaanites. The woman is clearly a Canaanite. Mark's description of her means nothing from a practical, biblical perspective, but identifies the woman from a vulgar Greek or Roman perspective, and the Greeks and Romans would understand. Here in the account of Christ and the Canaanite woman, we have a model of the suppliant recognizing and beseeching a powerful man. The concept of the suppliant was very important in the ancient world, and there's a wealth of writing about suppliants in the Roman and Greek worlds. And we in modern times have lost the concept of the suppliant in the mechanizations of bureaucracy. A suppliant, or supplicant, as they are also often called, is today in English merely one who makes a humble, earnest, and expectantly sincere plea for something from another. But in the ancient world, the idea had a religious connotation attached to it. Those who refused suppliants were seen as cruel and invited the wrath of the gods or of God, upon themselves. Suppliants often acted in desperation, and they took olive branches as a sign of their humbled state. Sometimes they even wore garments of mourning, throwing themselves at the feet of a ruler, a general, or even an altar, often grasping the garment of the one they sought favor from, and they begged earnestly for the mercy that they wished to receive. Suppliants only 
prostrated themselves before people who they knew were able to do what they were asking for. The Greek tragic poets very often portrayed suppliance in their plays. Suppliancy is a big theme in the tragic poets. Euripides wrote a play, Suppliant Women. Aeschylus, likewise, wrote a play called Suppliant Maidens. Both of those stories are accounts of the ancient Danans who had come from Egypt to Argos in ancient Greece. The opening line of Aeschylus' version from the Loeb Classical Library reads, a chorus of Danans doing the talking like this, and I quote, May Zeus, who guards suppliance, of his grace look upon our company that took ship and put to sea from the outmost land of fine sand at the outlets of the Nile. The suppliant was often a subject of Greek poetry and of history. Whether the suppliant be at the feet of a general or a king, an ancient hero, or the altar of a pagan idol. From Plato, Laws, Book 5, on suppliance, and his relations to strangers, a man should consider that a contract is a most holy thing, and that all concerns and wrongs of strangers are more directly dependent on the protection of God than wrongs done to citizens. For the stranger having no kindred and friends, is more to be pitied by gods and men. Wherefore also, he who is most able to avenge him is most zealous in his cause, and he who is most able is the genius of the god and of the stranger, who follows in the train of Zeus, the god of strangers. And for this reason, he who has a spark of caution in him will do his best to pass through life without sinning against the stranger, and of offenses committed, whether against strangers or fellow countrymen. But against that which is against suppliance is the greatest. For the God who witnessed to the agreement made with the suppliant becomes in a special manner the guardian of the sufferer, and he will certainly not suffer unavenged. From Lizzie, the ancient Roman historian. Here we shall see some references shedding light on the ancient concept of the suppliant. From Livy's History of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 14, describing a war between Rome and the Etruscans. And I quote, By these means, the Etrurians, Etrurian is a synonym for Etruscan, right? Having almost gained the victory, were surrounded and cut to pieces, a very small part of them, their general being lost, and no place of safety near, nearby, made the best of their way to Rome without arms, and in their circumstances and appearance merely like suppliants. There they were kindly received and provided with lodgings. When their wounds were cured, some of them returned home and gave an account of the hospitality and kindness which they had experienced. A great number remained at Rome, induced by the regard which they had contracted for their hosts and for the city. 
They had ground allotted to them for building houses, which was afterwards called the Tuscan Street. So we see what the Romans did for these Etruscan suppliants, who had actually lost a battle, and everybody who stayed on the battlefield was cut to pieces. From the same book, Livy, History of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 14, of an event which took place during the Punic Wars, Hippocrates and Epicides, knowing them by their standards and the fashion of their armor, advanced to them holding out olive branches and other emblems of suppliance, and besought them to receive them into their ranks to protect them there, and not to betray them into the hands of the Syracusans, by whom they themselves would soon be delivered up to the Romans to be murdered. The Cretans immediately, with one voice, bade them keep up their courage, for they should share every fortune with them. From Livy, the History of Rome, Book 45, Chapter 6, On the Deceit of Perseus, the King of Macedon, and a final military defeat at the hands of the Romans, at which he took refuge in a temple on Samothrace, and I quote, Then, after uttering many execrations against fortune and against the gods to whom the temple belonged, for not affording aid to a suppliant, he, Perseus, surrendered himself and his son to Octavius. So we see what Perseus expected from the gods, and his gods being idols, he didn't get it. From Livy, I'm sorry, from Homer's Odyssey, book 9, Odysseus is addressing Alcinous, the king of the Phocians, on the legendary island of Scaria, and I quote, We were frightened out of our senses by his loud voice and monstrous form, but I managed to say, We are Achaeans on our way home from Troy. But by the will of Jove and the stress of weather, we have been driven far out of our course. We are the people of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, who has won infinite renown throughout the whole world by sacking so great a city and killing so many people. We therefore humbly pray to you to show us some hospitality, and otherwise make us such presents as visitors may reasonably expect. May your excellency fear the wrath of heaven for we are your suppliants, and Jove takes all respectable travelers under his protection, for he is the avenger of all suppliants and foreigners in distress. The Eastern traditions concerning suppliants surely grew out of the ancient Hebrew commandment found in Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, and I quote, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Once we understand the importance which was placed on such supplication in the ancient world, we can begin to understand the exchange between Yahshua and the Canaanite woman. Here I will repeat the passage from Mark, verse 24. And arising from there, he departed for the borders of Tyre and Sidon. And entering into a house, he desired to know no one, yet was not able to escape notice. But immediately a woman hearing about him, of whom her daughter had an unclean spirit, having come, fell to his feet. 
And the woman was a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician by race, and she asked him that he would not cast that he would cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not good to take the bread of the children and cast it to the little dogs. Of course, Matthew's account is more comprehensive and has a longer dialogue. But the woman agreed that she was a dog when she responded. But she responded and says to him, yes, master. She agrees that he is her master. Yet the little dogs under the table eat from the crumbs of the children. And he said to her, on account of this word, go. The demon has departed from your daughter. And having gone off to her house, she found the child cast upon a couch, and the demon departed. We see in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, which Mark did not record, that the woman exclaimed, Pity me, Master, son of David. Yahshua did not desire to help the Canaanite woman, even though by calling him son of David, she recognized his legitimate claim as king being the heir to the throne of David. She also, he also told her that his coming was for Israel exclusively and for nobody else, as we see that he told her at Matthew fifteen twenty four that I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of course, since Yahweh does not change, that is still true today. The woman was clearly unworthy of his attention. The apostles wanted to get rid of her, which is clear from Matthew fifteen twenty three, And they were never chastised for having that attitude, therefore it could not have been wrong. But the woman continued and made obeisance to him, meaning she worshipped him, meaning that she fell to his feet in her begging for his mercy. The woman, once having fully and evidently sincerely, agreed with all of Christ's statements by all measures of Greco-Roman mercy and clemency, it not actually costing Yahshua anything to grant her wish. He was given a little choice but to do so. We have seen in the pages of Greek and Roman historians the custom with suppliance and the mercy extended even to battlefield enemies. Here we have it. Yahshua always complied with the cultural norms of the time. And it cost him nothing, such as when Peter retrieved the coin from the mouth of the fish to pay the stranger's tax so that he wouldn't defend the Romans. The woman, while an enemy, was a supplicant who, who recognized both his kingship and his purpose by accepting that she herself was a dog. And she agreed with him fully while prostrating herself at his seat. Since it was he who also declared that the wheat and tares must live together until the time of the end, he had little choice in the perspective of his own affirmed righteousness than to grant her wish as she desired. However, his granting her wish, which was only the healing of her daughter, does not mean that she is granted salvation in the context of eternal life. 
she and her daughter have not been changed, transformed magically somehow in their nature. She is still a dog. And her daughter is still a dog. When the end of time comes, when the time of the end comes, they or their descendants are still going to be gathered and burned in the lake of fire, since they are still tares. Granting her wish, she was somehow not transformed into a sheep. And again, coming out from the borders of Tyre, he came through Sidon into the Sea of Galilee. Midway between the borders of Decapolis, the region of ten cities. And they bring to him a deaf and a dumb man, and exhorted him that he would lay the hand upon him. And taking him away from the crowd, by himself, he put his finger into his ears, and spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to the heaven, he groaned and says to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. Mark having to translate that from Aramaic into Greek for us in the text proves that he wrote it in Greek. And his ear opened. And the binding of his tongue loosed, and he spoke correctly. And he ordered them that they should tell it to no one. But as much as he commanded them, still more abundantly, they proclaimed it. And they were overabundantly astonished, saying, He has done all good things, and he makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Which, of course, is the subject of a prophecy in Isaiah. Yahshua knew that the authorities would be upset that he did such things. And perhaps this serves as an example for us also today. We also know that those in places of authority in this world hate the truth and that they endeavor to destroy it. And yet we ourselves, like the man who was healed here, still cannot manage to keep quiet about it. That's the end of my presentation in Mark for this evening. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night I will be here with Rodney Martin, and, and Carolyn Yeager is also invited. Rodney Martin and I will, Yahweh willing, be discussing Germany and World War II and a lot of um, general facets about the war and aspects of the war and Germany's true intentions under National Socialist leadership. I hope to see you all tomorrow. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here.